This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Romans chapter 5 in the Word of God tonight. Romans chapter 5. And uh, good to see you tonight. What a tremendous crowd here tonight. And I'm thrilled. Uh, sometimes you come back on Sunday night and think, where, where is everybody? <laughs> but uh, that's not the case here. Well, praise the Lord for that. And already uh, my heart has been uh, stirred uh, deeply in uh, this service. And uh, different uh, songs, again, speaking. A lot of songs tonight, uh, you probably noticed, spoke of surrender. And a lot of that, i got to tell you a story, especially as Brother uh, Pastor uh, Ned was telling us a little bit about our connection uh, with my wife and I. Um, you know, uh, when I was uh, at college, I, Brother Davison invited me into his choir. It's the Show My People television choir. And so, uh, the, uh, you know, when you, when you do that, you, you, have, you have these sets where they come in with the cameras, and, and then they have uh, these people come on and put makeup on you. It's kind of embarrassing as a guy. <laughs> I remember I was walking across campus one day with a couple of the guys coming to the set, and we passed two or three guys, and they said, those guys had makeup on. <laughs> but uh, well, it was Mary Lynn, the first time I noticed her was she was one of the uh, grips, they called them, that came onto the set to put the makeup on. Now, she didn't get to put it on me, but <laughs> nonetheless, that's where I noticed her. And uh, uh, so then the next year, it's coming back to, uh, uh, to uh, college, and we come in early for the choir camp, and Mary Lynn was now in the choir, and I found out that she was now available, if you know what that means. <laughs> so, <laughs> I... Uh, Talked to my mom and dad, and uh, I decided to go for it. And so I had a particular day where I was going to come to choir, and I was going to ask Marilyn out the first time. Well, I had an optometrist appointment, and I was supposed to be done with that and to choir on time. Well, the, the appointment went late. <laughs> And so I came into choir late. Now, in, in a choir like this, you know, you're, you're training to be on camera. So, you know, there are times when you're, we're, you had us looking at mirrors, uh, did you know, you know and, and, you know, to, to see if, you know, see what, see what we look like. Are we smiling? You know, is your, is your mouth crooked? <laughs> uh, and all sorts of things. And, and uh, sometimes we would sing to each other. Well, when I came in that day, uh, uh, Brother Davis had all of the guys lined up on one side and facing all the girls. And so one guy singing to each girl and you're supposed to critique each other. Well, because I was late, uh, that meant that uh, there were two girls on one guy. So when I came in, he said, go to the end. That's where there's the extra spot. Well, so happened in the providence of God <laughs> that the young lady that I got lined up across was Mary Lynn. And guess what song we were singing? Have thine own way, Lord. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> but uh, uh, as we sang some of the songs of Surrender tonight, I was thinking of some of that. Uh, but uh, what a precious time. We had precious time at lunch today. And this is just a delight to be back here, Pastor Asher. And, and uh, just a, a good spirit here. I praise the Lord for that. Uh, that doesn't just happen, so the, the Lord's already, uh, already working. Let me mention a couple of things that are at the table there. In light of Mary Lynn being here with us, uh, we do have some of her recordings uh, on the back table. There is a, a piano recording entitled, What a Savior, What a Friend. And these are piano stylings that Mary Lynn has arranged of well-known hymns and gospel songs. Uh, so there's no, no vocal line here, just the piano line. Uh, but God's gifted her in arranging uh, in uh, her chords. Uh, Dr. Uh, David Parker says that uh, this recording, uh, this is uh, uh, when it came out, he said this uh, for years. And I, I haven't been to talk to him recently. It was his favorite sacred piano recording and uh, so on. Uh, but uh, 
the songs are songs that you'll recognize if you've been in church for a while. And uh, trustfully, the musical rendition will take those words and the truth of those words home to your heart as you hear that uh, musical rendition. So that's the piano recording. Then there are two vocal recordings. One is entitled The Presence of the Lord. This is vocal solo. Marilyn is singing. This one is with kind of a meditative instrumental sound. So piano, cello, piano, flute, things of that nature. All of these are heart cries for revival. Prayers, songs like, oh, for a closer walk with God. I tell you, I can hardly hear that song without just getting moved. Breathe on me, breath of God, spirit of God. We sang it this morning, descend upon my heart. Songs like that. And starts with cries, heart cries for personal revival, then moves into heart cry for corporate revival, and some tremendous words that have been in our hymnals for years, but some of them we haven't uh, been that familiar with. And Joan Pinkston arranged a lot of these, beautifully done. And uh, so this is a vocal solo with that meditative sound crying out for revival. And then there's the recording called Christ Lives in Me. Again, this is vocal solo. Marilyn is singing. This is full orchestration, uh, full orchestration, beautifully done. And all of it is revival truth, like the title song. When you access life again, you're accessing Jesus who lives in you. And uh, there's a song called Only Thee, words by Fanny Crosby that we uh, found in an old hymnal. Marilyn put it to music, a beautiful uh, a set of lyrics that puts the focus right on Jesus. Uh, there's a song called Trust Him by Lucy Bennett. Uh, we were over in England uh, a number of years ago and found a, a little tiny hymnal that they used in the great conferences uh, about a hundred years ago that were dealing with the difference between flesh and spirit. And uh, uh, there's a song on faith there by Lucy Bennett, Trust Him, Outstanding. Marilyn put that one to music. And uh, so those kinds of songs, some of the songs that my wife and I have written where I've written the words and she's written the music, like uh, Knowing Christ and the Wind of the Spirit are on this recording as well. And uh, I Love You, Lord, and so on. And so these are available individually or they're available any three for a significant savings. Also tonight, I want to mention the book called The Revived Life because the message on the clean heart is a chapter in this book. This is a thorough progression of truth on the spirit-filled life. And starting with that heart that's longing, knowing that there's more. And then it goes into those provision truths, the cleansing power of the blood for that clean heart. And friends, when that really connects and you take that clean heart and you know you're clean because the Bible says so, it is freeing. And then it goes into a chapter on the exchange life, and we'll deal with some of that truth in these days. Uh, the enabling power of the Spirit, exchanging your life for the life of Christ. There's a chapter on the authoritative power that we have in Christ on the throne over the enemy. Spiritual warfare truth. I don't hear about much about that in our day. What an important truth. And then it goes into how to access that into uh, uh, the uh, overcoming life, how to take the way of escape. I think we dealt with that truth last time. And then on into the overflowing life. And then there's a final chapter on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Boy, you don't hear that phrase much these days, but I'm going to tell you, as the Bible teaches it, we need to understand it and embrace it because it's vital. And uh, so uh, that and other books are there. I'll mention more as the week progresses. Well, Romans chapter 5 in the Word of God tonight. Good to see you tonight. And I uh, trust you got your nap in. I uh, snuck one in. I headed off to the Mar uh, airport, got Maryland, and I'm here. So, and uh, I... Uh, May the Lord just continue his work. I appreciated the men praying tonight. If you have the opportunity for that prayer meeting, that's a, that's a neat time. There's genuine heart cry there. But tonight we're going to look at Romans chapter 5 toward the end of the chapter. Now the book of Romans 
is, as you know, a gospel book. Chapter 15, verse 16, the Apostle Paul uses the word gospel, evangel, referring to the entire book of Romans. Now, that's fascinating because there's the gospel to sinners, what we think of primarily with the word gospel. That's just the first five chapters. Justification by grace through faith. Then it switches to the gospel to the saints. Romans 6 through 8, sanctification by grace through faith. Then it emphasizes God's system in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that it's all by grace, but it all must be accessed by responsible faith. And no man can change that. And then you have that pivot in Romans 12, 1 and 2, beseeching us to present our bodies as you give, move into the practical application of those last four chapters. Now, our text tonight is the bridge between the gospel to sinners and the gospel to the saints. It is the platform that launches us into the good news of deliverance from the power of sin this side of heaven. Now, friends, it's wonderful to get right with God. We dealt with that this morning. You know, God wouldn't mind it if we stayed right with God. And there is amazing provision for that. But how you and I think is going to play a major role in this. Way of thinking. Mindset. What you really believe. We sang tonight in one of the songs a phrase, As king come and rule on my heart's throne. But friends, who really is the leader of your life? In a church like this, I think many would say, well, yes, I've surrendered all. But tonight I want us to consider whether or not our focus really is on the leader himself. Or whether or not we've fallen into a common deception that hinders us greatly. So tonight, let's look at our text, Romans 5, verse 17. For if by one man's offense, death reigned. Now notice the word reigned here. That's the idea of rule, have dominion, death reigned by one. Much more, there's that comparison phrase, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign, rule, have dominion in life. That's now. Reign, rule. Have dominion in life by one Jesus Christ. There's the key. Verse 18, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, made, made, constituted sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made, constituted, righteous. What does that mean? Verse 20, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. Did you notice? The law does not empower you to do right. That's not its purpose. The law entered to show you when you do wrong. And that's very important for us to know. That's what it says. The law entered that the offense might abound. That you would know when there's an offense here. 
But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned, ruled, had dominion unto death, even so might grace, spirit enablement, reign, rule, have dominion through righteousness unto eternal life, the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I want to speak tonight on the difference between struggling sinners versus righteous reigning. Or we could say it this way, the difference between a sin-conscious mindset versus a God-conscious mindset. One is death, the other is life. Will you join me in prayer and let's ask the spirit of the living God to enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Lord, we thank you tonight, already speaking to our hearts. Lord, already being challenged with the truth of genuine surrender. Now, Lord, tonight, open our understanding as to what that is and how that comes about. And, Lord, give us understanding as to what our mindset is now and who really is our leader. And, Lord, undeceive us where we need to be undeceived. Lord, convince us of truth. Move us from saying right things to believing them. And so I plead the blood of Jesus, Lord, protect us from the enemy. I claim the victory, Lord Jesus, you won when you said it is finished. And in your name, I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder and trust you that that not be allowed. So, Lord, speak to us now. Accomplish your purpose. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a young preacher... I can say that now that I'm no longer young. But when I was a young preacher, I remember hearing a preacher say, you know, if you want victory over sin, you need to memorize Romans 6. Well, I wanted this victory over sin thing. <laughs> so I memorized Romans 6. I could stand and I could quote it. And you know what? I didn't have any more victory than I had before. Because if you don't understand what you memorized and you don't depend on the truth of it, you're not helped. It's just an intellectual exercise. Have you ever noticed the precision of the inspired text in passages like Psalm 119, 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart. It doesn't say mind. That's how we often take it. But it doesn't say mind. It's deeper. Yeah. Thy word... Have I hid, treasured, hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God? So it's not just memorizing. Hmm. Well, what does it mean? Well, I want to ask you some questions tonight, three of them. And I'd like for you to really be honest in your answer. You don't have to answer out loud. Uh, you don't have to raise your hand except on the third one. But flag your answers in your mind so that you really have a grip on what we're talking about. First question, on an average day, on an average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? So what we're looking for here is ratio. On an average day, how many sins would you say you commit to acts of righteousness? This many sins compared to this many acts of righteousness on an average day. Got that answer flagged in your mind. All right, let's go to the second question. On a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your average day would you say is righteous? A similar question, but a little bit different nuance here. 
So on a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your day would you say is righteous? All right, let's flag that answer. Now the third question, and this one you can raise your hand. If you have not sinned today, <laughs> would you raise your hand? <laughs> I noticed that went like this. <laughs> now, interesting, nobody raised their hand. Now, the, uh, these questions have been asked in audiences where they've actually, take, actually taken down the data. It's very interesting. The average audience of a church like this, on the first question, on an average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? The ratio is generally three sins to one act of righteousness. Now, there was a seminary class where it was two sins to one act of righteousness. <laughs> but the average audience is three sins to one act of righteousness. Very interesting. Uh, when it comes to the percentage uh, of your day is righteous, uh, on a scale of 1 to 100, uh, the average audience responds somewhere between 30% is righteous up to 60%. Somewhere between 30 and 60, and most of that is on the lower end or under the 50%, uh, except for that... Uh, uh, one part of it, but somewhere between 30 and 60%. On the question, uh, if you have not sinned today, would you raise your hand? Uh, most audiences, nobody raises their hand, like the audience tonight. Now, what in the world? Let me get something fixed here. I was trying to prevent one this morning from happening again, and now I'm causing more trouble. Thing in my pocket, so it can't fall out tonight unless. Who knows? But where was I? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, the audience. Okay, on the hand question. All right. Uh, if you haven't said today, how many, uh, uh, I mean, raise your hand. Generally, nobody raises their hand. Now, what sins did you commit? Could you even specify? Because most people can't. Now, all of that reveals what we can call a sin-conscious mindset. In other words, for many of God's people that were trying to live right, do right, sing about victory, and do, you know, live victoriously, many view themselves as a dirt ball, to put it in the vernacular. Uh, many view themselves as, well, you know, I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner. And that is a common phrase... We may not put the dirty rotten, but we say, you know, I'm just a sinner. And that is a very common statement and a very common way of thinking. The problem is the way you think, the way you really believe affects how you act. As a man thinketh in his heart, not his mind, his heart, so is he. In other words, what you really believe, that's what you act out. You see, I'm not interested tonight in what we say we believe. I mean, I am. But far more than that, I'm interested in what we really believe. Because you and I act what we really believe. That's pretty sobering. You see, your heart, what's the heart? I remember in grad school, I thought, wow, I'm going to study the heart. <laughs> oh, man, you know, you got two or three different Hebrew words, and it's translated this way and that way, and I'm thinking, good grief. 
how in the world can you figure this one out? So I chucked that word study for a while. But I came back to it <laughs> years later. <laughs> you know, the heart is fascinating. The heart is what you extract out of your soul. Now, your soul is your mind, your affections, uh, and your will. So a lot of thoughts come into our mind, even on a given day. All sorts of things come into our mind. A lot of them we kick right back out. Uh, but there are some things we don't kick out, and it, it kind of simmers there for a while. And uh, what you think about or what you understand in the, in the mind affects you. Thus the affections, and the affections produce involuntary emotions. And all of that moves our wills. <laughs> so a lot going on there in the soul or the psychological part of the human constitution. Your heart is the reflection of your soul. Your heart is what you pull out, what you extract out of the soul. It's what you really believe. It's what you latch onto. That's what affects you. That's what moves your will. And that's how you act. The heart. That word have I hid in my heart. You see, we're dealing with your belief system. That's another way to say it. This system of belief, your way of thinking, the grid of how you operate, your mode of operation comes out of what you really believe. That's what we're dealing with tonight. Now, in the average sermon, uh, you know, we preachers, we start with the proposition, you know, the big point, the theme, whatever you want to call it, and then we have our points that support it. Tonight, we're going to save the proposition till the end. So you'll know when the end is coming, <laughs> when I bring that word up again. Uh, but let's start with the points first of our discussion, three parts to our discussion. Then we'll come back to drawing the big point. First of all, the first part of our discussion is a description of what I'm going to call a sin-conscious mindset. A description of this mindset that, you know, well, I'm, I'm a sinner. A uh, sin-conscious mindset. It starts with being law-focused. Now, not a lot of people would, would never say, well, I'm focused on the law. We say it this way, you got to do this and you got to not do this. Hmm, that's pretty prevalent, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, I was all about that for years. You got to do this, got to not do this. The do's and the don'ts, now don't get me wrong, there's things we should do and things we should don't. <laughs> but should that be our focus? Now think with me. When you're focused on got to do this, got to not do that, that's your version of how Christianity should play out. It's your version of law living. Because you're focused on not sinning. You say, well, that sounds good. Here's the problem. Do you know when we're focused on not sinning, we're focused on sin? And guess what happens when you focus on sin? You sin. Wow, what a deception, folks. Amazing. See, the law, we just read it. It has no power to help you do right. It shows you when you do wrong. And if that's your focus, it's discouraging. <laughs> now, in that sin-conscious mindset that's focused on, I've got to do this, got to not do this, you're focused on not sinning, and therefore you're focused on sin, and that leads to sin, that's going to produce feelings of fear. When am I going to go down again? Boy, that's a common thought. Feelings of, wow, I, I, I got to try harder. Feelings of unworthiness because we don't measure up. Feelings of insufficiency because we don't have what it takes. 
feelings of frustration because we cannot achieve our goal. All these things. Feelings of guilt because we're failing to reach that goal. And therefore, feelings of condemnation as our conscience is beating us up and the accuser of the brethren is glad to come alongside and beat us up as well. A double pummeling by the conscience and the accuser. And yet, in this sin-conscious mindset, we're judgmental of others. Because if you're focused on all the stuff, then you're focused on when other people blow it too. And it produces a very judgmental attitude. Wow. You know, I lived in this for years, so I know this paradigm very well. It's a tragedy. My father didn't teach this at all, but somehow it's where I landed for a while. Uh, but you know, from this system of belief about yourself, living the true Christian life would be unnatural. Because you view yourself as just the sinner. It would be unfulfilling because the true Christian life is living the opposite of what you believe you are. You see, it's hard. In fact, it's impossible for the true Christian life to live the law-focused life. But you know, it's easy for the true Christian life, that is, Christ in you, to live the Christian life. We act according to what we really believe we are. We may say right things because we're taught. But our actions reveal what we really believe. Now, before we move to the second part of the discussion, in this description, let's take a moment to compare what I've just described, the sin-conscious way of thinking, system of belief, and let's compare it to a God-conscious mindset or system of belief. We noted that in the sin-conscious mindset, you're law-focused. Now, friends... We saw this morning in 2 Corinthians 3 that the letter of the law, the letter of truth without the spirit kills. And we saw that in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, it's called the ministry of death. So if you're focused on your version of law, got to do this, got to not do this, it's death. However, on the God-conscious side of things, in the God-conscious system of belief, instead of law-focused, you're Jesus-focused. Instead of death-focused, you're life-focused. Friends, do you know that Jesus is called the eternal life in 1 John 1, 2? Eternal life is not just something. Eternal life is someone. And when you're focused on Jesus, you're focused on life himself. Fascinating. So, in the sin-conscious mindset, you're focused on not sinning, but in the God-conscious mindset, you're focused on the righteous one. In the sin-conscious mindset, you have that mode of fear. When will I sin again? In the God-conscious mindset, there's the mode of faith or confidence in God. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's the mode of try harder. In the God-conscious mindset, there's the mode of rest and trust in God, in Jesus, in Christ. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's that sense of unworthiness because you don't measure up. But in the God-conscious mindset, there's a sense of worthiness in Christ. 
as we saw this morning, who measured up for us and continues to measure up for us. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's the sense of frustration. In the God-conscious mindset, there's the sense of peace. You see, in the sin-conscious mindset, there's the sense of guilt. In the God-conscious mindset, there's a sense of joy because you're free in Christ. In the sin-conscious mindset, there's condemnation. In the God-conscious mindset, there's no condemnation. In the sin-conscious mindset, you're judgmental. But in the God-conscious mindset, you're not judgmental. Because in the sin-conscious mindset, living the Christian life, the true Christian life, is unnatural. But now don't miss this. In the God-conscious mindset, living the true Christian life is natural because you're accessing the Christian life himself. And by the way, when you access him, you do right. You do the right things and you don't do the wrong thing. But the point is that's not the focus. The point is you're focused on him. And that's when I asked, why I asked you tonight, you know, as king, come rule on my heart's throne. We say he's the leader, but really, is he or is it our goal? For many of us, we're outcome focused. Which means we're not Jesus focused. And there's a grave danger to that, as we'll see as we move along tonight. So, which of these two comparisons, which of these two descriptions best describes you... And before you answer, let's go to the second part of our discussion. Let's move from description to diagnosis. Let's diagnose whether or not we have a sin-conscious system of belief. I want to give seven symptoms. You know, this is a COVID world, so let's talk about symptoms, okay? <laughs> seven symptoms of a sin-conscious system of belief. Number one. You consider yourself still a sinner, saved by grace. You say, preacher, we say that all the time. I know. The key word in that phrase was the word still. Now, obviously, if you're saved, you, we were sinners. And yes, if you're saved, we are saved by grace. The question tonight is, are you still a sinner? based on what the New Testament says and especially emphasizes. You know, the New Testament is very clear. You were sinners, and now you are saints. Did you notice in our text in verse 19, many were made sinners because of Adam's sin, and now many made righteous? Isn't that like, okay, now that means you're not a sinner? Now, don't misunderstand me. What this is saying is, now we're saints. Do you know that 63 times in the New Testament, now the New Testament is a relatively short piece of literature. In the New Testament, 63 times the author of the New Testament, ultimately the Holy Spirit himself, calls believers in Jesus saints, holy ones, 63 times. Friends, that's not a passing comment. It's an emphasis. So we were sinners, we are saints who can still sin. <laughs> so we're not talking about sinless perfection. I don't know why people get bent out of shape about that. I mean, nobody's even close. But it is interesting, is it not? 
as a child of God, there's something that happened where now we're able not to sin. Now, we're able to sin, but there's a provision that we're going to emphasize and see whereby we're able not to sin. That's amazing. But if you focus on your ability to sin, what's going to happen? You're going to sin. See, focus, focus. I hope that word rings in your head by the end of these days. It's so critical. I have a dear friend. He's now with the Lord. I don't know if you remember Mark Pittman. Uh, wow, I miss him. Uh, we uh, stayed in contact over the years, uh, but he's with the Lord now. But he wrote a little poem dealing with this. He said, I once was a sinner, but now I'm a saint. Maturing I am, but perfect I ain't. <laughs> and so obviously as saints, we can still sin. And in that sense, we can call ourselves sinners. But that's not the emphasis God wants us to have. In fact, one time, only once, does Paul say, I am, present tense, instead of past tense, I am the chief of sinners. But even in that context, he's actually referring back to his former life of persecuting uh, God's people. But obviously, the fact that we can still sin, in that sense, we can call ourselves a sinner. But that is not the emphasis in the New Testament. We've got to get a hold of this if we ever want things to change. It's mindset. It's what you really believe. God says you're a saint. Well, then why are we insulting what God says. Because when we focus on our, you know, I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner, I'm a dirt ball. Isn't that kind of insulting when he says, no, you're a saint? Why are we calling what God calls a saint a dirt ball? Second, second symptom of a sin conscious system of belief. You assume that you sin often, even without knowing it. And that's why most people never raise their hand on that one question. <laughs> well, I don't know what I did, but I'm sure I did something. <laughs> so we assume we sin often, even without knowing it. That's why I asked, what were the sins? And if you couldn't think of any, that's pretty interesting. Now, this works better when I preach this on Sunday morning. <laughs> Less hours in the day gone under the uh, bridge. But nonetheless, even without knowing, you know, if that's the case, we're sin-filled. But now wait a second. When you got saved, did not the Holy Spirit move into you? And of course he did. And when sin is approaching, is there not that still small voice that warns us? Which means you know it's coming. So it's not like we're just out there sinning without knowing it. And when you do ignore him and you grieve the spirit and choose the sin and yield to the flesh, does not the spirit immediately convict you? It's just like the referee in the ball game. When somebody breaks the rules, he blows the whistle. Okay, in the same way, the Holy Spirit convicts us, which means we would know it. And when he convicts, by the way, it's always specific. Counterfeit conviction is always general. And Satan tries to get you to follow the wrong voice. Holy Spirit conviction is always specific. You'll know exactly what it is. Now, I realize it's possible to so trample your conscience and so desensitize your conscience that things get pretty dull. On the other hand, when you ask the Lord, search me, oh God, know my heart. When you ask God to search you, he will show you exactly what's wrong if something's wrong. You'll know it. So this idea that we sin often without knowing it 
wow, wait, that doesn't fit with what the Bible teaches. And if that's what you think, then you probably think you're sinning all the time. And if that's what you think, that's going to affect your relationship with God, not him towards you, but you toward him. And there's always going to be this sense of shame and hanging our heads, and that's going to affect your faith, and your prayer life will be radically hindered. Let's go to a third symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. You assume it is normal Keyword, you assume it is normal to sin regularly. I mean, what's our phrase? I'm only human. Ah. You see, when we say that, we're assuming it's normal to sin regularly. Is that what the New Testament teaches? What about phrases like in Romans 8, just a few chapters from our text tonight, that says we are more than... Conquerors. This is a well-taught audience. Conquerors. Normal to sin? Doesn't sound like that fits, does it? So which one's right? <laughs> now, the New Testament does teach that there is a provision for victory that's amazing, but it is not automatic. That's where a lot of people really get messed up. It's not fatalistic. It's not inevitable. It's by faith, which is a responsible uh, cooperation with God where you depend on him, uh, his leadership, and his power. But the victory is available. The access is faith. And because it's not automatic, the Lord, uh, the Lord in his word does warn us to flee fornication. Flee also youthful lust. It warns us and encourages us, walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It challenges us in 1 John 2, just after the text we saw this morning, that... Uh, uh, if any, uh, well, for, it challenges first to sin not. And then if any man sin, look, notice, the if any man sin is the exception. The way that's worded. It's saying, look, sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can walk in the light and the blood of Jesus cleans us up as we saw this morning. But the emphasis there in 1 John is sin not. And if there's the exception, if any man sin, then Take your provision in Jesus to deal with it, who is your advocate. Fascinating. We act what we really believe. Fourth symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. This is a big one. You believe that temptation itself is sin. That if temptation somehow gets in your mind, Oh, God, forgive me. Now, look, I'm in a lot of churches where along the way they've heard, okay, temptation is not sin. But again, I'm not interested in what you say you believe. I'm interested in what you really believe. Let me get down to proving whether or not or showing whether or not you believe temptation itself is sin. If when you are tempted, and let's say some wrong uh, thought pattern comes rolling across your brain, if you immediately confess it, you think temptation is sin. You may say that it's not sin, but you down deep are acting what you really believe. And if you're confessing immediately, oh, how could that even be my brain? God, forgive me. Okay, then you believe the temptation itself is sin. Now, friends, if temptation itself is sin, we are sinning all the time. <laughs> because there's a lot of traps, and there's a lot of uh, snares, there's a lot of triggers out there, and there's the fiery darts from the enemy beside all the stuff in the world that appeals to our flesh. And if temptation itself is sin, Man, we're in trouble, but you know it can't be because Jesus was tempted 
and all points like as we yet without sin. So temptation cannot be sin. That's why Jesus said, pray that you enter not into temptation. Again, letting us know that temptation does not become sin for us unless we enter into it. But that we're tempted, that is not sin. That's when you can take the way of escape. There is that marvelous provision where we can say, no, I reject that. I claim Jesus. Well, I was in a meeting one time and a guy said, well, yeah, but what about that verse in Proverbs that says the thought of foolishness is sin? Well, look it up. The word thought means the scheming, the devising of foolishness. In other words, that's not just something that enters your brain. That's the planning to do it. Okay, that means you've already entered the temptation. But temptation itself is not sin. And when there's a trigger, Satan wants us to confess it. And when you do, you're saying that's me and you just entered the temptation. <laughs> what a tragic deception. No, when that hits you, you can say, that's not me. I reject that. I claim my union with Jesus. And I hope that becomes more and more clear as we move along in these days together. Number five, a fifth symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. You assume that it's easier to sin than to do right. That's another big one. You assume it's easier, that's a key word, to sin than to do right. Now, you act what you really believe. So if you assume it's easier to sin than to do right, what's going to happen? <laughs> You're going to sin. Wow. I was in a meeting some years ago, and the pastor had been in the church uh, for a while. He was loved and respected. And uh, one day he noticed on the calendar that April 1st was going to land on a Sunday. He thought, this is a great opportunity to have some fun. And so uh, in the Sunday school hour, which was in their case before church, he gets up and announces to the congregation his resignation. <laughs> and people start crying. And I mean, it, it got messy <laughs> between Sunday school and church. They're gathering in groups. How could he? And he's standing aside, not, not talking to anybody, kind of watching. And uh, uh, they're, they're weeping. I mean, it was a mess. And he stands up in the morning service and says, April fools. And it did not go over. <laughs> and they got him back three months later in Christian love, of course. <laughs> wow. Now, why were they crying and weeping? It's because you act out what you really believe. They really believed it. He wasn't always a joker, and that makes it even <laughs> more difficult to discern this, <laughs> that this was a joke. And so they believed it, and of course they were acting according to what they really believe. Now, what do you believe? What do I believe? Do we believe it's easier to sin or easier to do right? Doesn't the Bible say that God's commandments are not grievous, which is the word burdensome? Yeah, I know it says that, but man, I'm telling you, preacher, there are times when it really does seem like a burden. Okay, how can it say that? It's because in God's economy, it's, it's by faith, which is not a human work, and when there's faith, which is God dependence, that accesses grace where God does the work. That's why it's not burdensome. That's why Jesus could say, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, I'm meek and lowly in heart, for my yoke is easy. And the reason is, is when you get under that yoke with Jesus, he carries the load. <laughs> ah, that's why it's easy. Now, let me ask you a question, folks. Is it hard for a dog 
to act like a dog. I mean, do you have to have, you know, these little lessons when they're puppies? All right, here's how you make a mess. Here's how you yap and drive everybody crazy. You know, they just do it. <laughs> Is it hard for a pig to act like a pig? No. You can clean them up and take them to the fair, and here's a puddle. Oop, there they are. Oh, man, now it's all a mess. So on. Okay, so if you are a saint, which is what God says, well, shouldn't it be easy? Okay, let's go to a sixth symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief. You assume your default mode is to sin unless you deliberately choose righteousness. This is a huge one. You assume your default mode is to sin unless you deliberately choose righteousness. By the way, if that's what you believe, then the whole burden's on you. You're in trouble. Do you know the reality is opposite? When we understand what God's provision actually is, do you know that your default mode is righteousness unless you deliberately choose sin? And just like a computer has its default mode to this printer, and that's what's going to happen unless you go in and deliberately change it. In the same way, when you understand who you are in Christ, and we'll come to that, but when you understand that, then the reality is your default mode, the default of the real you, is righteousness. Unless you deliberately choose sin. You say, how can you say that? Well, friends, there's a phrase that puzzled me for years, and I heard preachers talk about it. I thought, what in the world are they talking about? It's that phrase in Romans 6.2 that says, you died to sin. Not sins, but this entity called sin, which is personified as a master in Romans 6.6, as someone who has served. And it says in Romans 6.2 that you died to sin. Now, the practical essence of death and physical death is when the soul separates from the body. There's some kind of separation that took place in the core of your being, in the core of your human constitution. Uh, there's something that happened where the core you, the real you, died, got separated from that sin master. And that part of you got raised, the new man, which as we're going to see, is righteous. And that righteous part of you wants Jesus every time. Now, the reason it's confusing to us is because when there's a trigger of temptation, we feel a pull. We feel the something toward it. That's not you. That's that sin master that you used to be joined to, and we'll see it tomorrow night, that you get severed from, you get unshackled from. It's absolutely incredible. But he still resides in your soul and body level. And you feel that his default, obviously, is to take the temptation every time. But that's not the real you. The real you is a different dynamic. And friends, that part of you wants Jesus. And we'll all emphasize that as we go along. But you know, when you walk in this provision, when you walk in the sphere of the Spirit... You access Jesus, Christ in you, and thus I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Do you know when it's not I, but Christ, and the, that reality is real for you? Everything you do is an act of righteousness in those moments, right? You know when you're walking in the Spirit, it's not I, but Christ. And when it's not I, but Christ, when you get up in the morning, it's an act of righteousness. Now, for some, it really, really is. <laughs> 
But you know, when you're walking in the Spirit, it's not I have a Christ. When it's not I have a Christ, when you brush your teeth, it's an act of righteousness. I mean, anything that Jesus does is righteous, right? Do you see then acts of righteousness compared to acts of sin, the ratio thing? We get it all backwards because we don't understand this. But when you understand this, whoa, whoa, this lopsides it the other direction, <laughs> big time. You know, when, when you're walking in the Spirit, it's not I but Christ. And when it's not I but Christ, when you change the diapers, <laughs> uh, you know, that's an act of righteousness. That's another one that's a real big one. In other words, what I'm simply trying to say, it's not just when you go soul winning or read your Bible and pray. It's when you walk in the provision of the Spirit so that it's not I but Christ, then everything you do in those moments is righteous. One preacher put it this way, everything a Christian does except when he sins is an act of righteousness. My father put it this way, the new nature is a new natural. See, default mode. So what is that new nature? Well, we'll see. Number seven, final symptom of a sin-conscious system of belief, or at least that we'll discuss tonight. You assume God loves you more when you perform well and less when you don't. Now, this is a huge one. You assume God loves you more when you perform well and less when you don't. How many people think, oh, man, I blew it. Oh, man, God's ticked at me now. It's going to be a couple of weeks where he'll bless me again. Now look, all of that is a performance-based grid of sanctification. It's Catholic-styled sanctification. And it fills Baptist churches, ironically. Wow. Because the reality is, you're God's child. He loves you. According to John 17, 23, Jesus said, the Father loves you as much as the Father loves Jesus. That's unconditional. And Jesus said in John 15, 9, that he loves us as much as the Father loves him. And if we would ever believe that, friends, it would change everything. Because we think God doesn't love us because, you know, we think, well, you know, I made a mess over here and I made a mess over here and I stumbled over there and how could I have this habit still, you know, this is 20 years later now and I'm in good grief. And friends, the fact is, obviously God's grieved when we sin, but his love is unconditional, which means he loves us as much on our worst day as on our best. Let it sink in, folks, because he does. Amen. He really does. And when you believe that, it'll start changing the outflow. All right. So where do we stand on this diagnosis? If some of these describe us, then this means we have bought into deceptions. And the reason these things describe us is because... We don't believe right, and we act what we really believe. So we've seen a description of a sin-conscious mindset. 
the diagnosis. Now let's get to the deliverance, and we'll just, we'll open it up tonight, and Lord willing, we'll unfold it tomorrow night, but oh, we got to get there, because, you know, we read a text, and we got to get to the text. You know, <laughs> so far I've been pulling from everywhere else. Well, let's get right to our text tonight. Here it is, the deliverance for the sin-conscious mindset. It's going to emphasize to us that we have to change the way we think. If we have a wrong way of thinking, a wrong system of belief, then we have to change our thinking. You know, there's a Bible word for that. It's called repent. <laughs> it's just that we're not talking about salvation repentance. We're talking about sanctification repentance. Ah, where we change the way we think, what we really believe, that system of belief. There has to be a heart change. That's what we need. That, that exchange of grids of what we really believe but it's got to be based on truth. So let's get to the truth. It's right in our text. There's positional truth. This is the truth of justification whereby you are declared righteous. Verse 18, uh, end of the verse says, the free gift came upon all men unto justification. Verse one of our text, uh, Romans five, therefore being justified by faith, the moment you put your faith in Jesus as your savior, among many other great salvation truths, and there's so, so many, but among them all, one of them is, not only were your sins covered, but you were declared righteous. The righteousness of Jesus was imputed, credited to your account, and God declared you legally from that point on, you're righteous. That's your position. We call it positional truth. It's a legal truth. It's, it is a marvelous truth. You're declared righteous. Now, when the righteous, you know, our sin was put on Christ so that his righteousness could be legally credited to us. Now, on a scale of 1 to 100, what percent is Christ's righteousness? It's 100. That's what you have. And so when I asked the question earlier tonight, what percentage of your day would you say is righteous? The trick word there, <laughs> forgive me, <laughs> was the word is. Because I wasn't asking what percentage of your day do you act out righteousness. I was asking what percentage of your day is and legally 100%. Friends, do you know when you walk into heaven, you walk in 100% righteous? And I know there's the judgment seat, but when you walk into heaven, friends, you will not walk in with your head down. You won't because you don't go in on your righteousness. Even the child of God who gets so depressed and so discouraged, fourth stage of depression, and takes his life, goes in with his head up. Even a dear friend of mine who had gotten off of drugs and was doing well for 18 months and then had a, a bad moment and OD'd and died. His brother was just having a hard time. I said, look, you've got to understand something. Your brother walked into heaven with his head up. Because he didn't walk in on his righteousness. He walked in on the righteousness of Jesus. Friend, it's 100%. It's what God says. Positional truth, justification. You're declared righteous. It's what God says. But it gets even better. And this next truth is often ignored. I don't know why, but it's often ignored. But it's so critical. We jump from positional truth to practical truth. And we're going to get to practical truth. But there's another one. I call it provisional truth. This is more than positional. This is more than legal. This is actual. There's provisional truth. This is the truth of regeneration, whereby there's a part of you that's made righteous. We saw it in verse 19. 
Now, for by, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So this is more than justification. Not just declared righteous, there's a part of you that's made righteous. The word is constituted. Over in 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, it says, For God the Father made God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That was actual, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's actual too. That's the word that we might become the righteousness of God. Look, there's a part of you that is not just declared righteous, it is righteous. Now, how can that be? Well, again, it helps us to understand the human constitution. We are made up of body and soul and spirit. Now, on the body level, we, there is a sense where we could say, yeah, we're dirt balls because the Bible says, dust thou art, <laughs> and unto dust shalt thou return. So on that level, okay. On the soul level, I recognize there are times when we blow it, we get deceived, we make wrong choices, and uh, not looking so good. But do you know on the spirit level, that's the part that got regenerated. The human spirit is generated with divine life. Lord willing, we'll see some details tomorrow night, but it is incredible. It's called the new man created after God in righteousness and true holiness. That's why God calls you a saint. Well, what does it mean when it says created after God? It's because 1 John 3, 9 says that that part of you is God's seed. Literally, God's sperma is the word. Do you know that when you were born again, something of God's own divine holy nature was implanted into you? You got the DNA of his holiness. Now, friends, that's glorious. And when it sinks in, we can shout hallelujah, especially when you're down in the south. <laughs> now, friends, this is amazing. There's a part of us that's not just declared righteous. It is righteous. Now, praise the Lord for justification. Praise the Lord that we're declared righteous even though the soul and body haven't caught up yet. <laughs> but there's a part of you, your human spirit, that part is righteous. It's God's nature put into you. And that nature is righteous and holy and loving and good. And it's been that way since that was implanted into your being when you were born again and the life of God was birthed into you. Look, there had to be a part made holy so the Holy Spirit could move in. You have the divine life implanted so the Holy Spirit can then indwell from that beachhead of the divine nature that has been put into us. Oh, wow. Now, that is not the absence of our weakness. It's the presence of his strength. And that brings us to the third truth, and that is practical truth. Got to get there. There is a faith access, and faith is not a work. Faith depends on the worker. There's a faith access whereby we may live righteous, whereby we might access the righteous one himself who has moved in. Now, let's finish with this here in verse 17. We're getting close to that proposition. For if by one man's offense death reigned, ruled, had dominion by one much more, they, ah, it switched from singular to plural. Now they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign, rule, have dominion. Notice, in life, that's now how? By one Jesus. The key is focusing on Jesus. Now here's my point. All of us will say, well, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, you got to focus on Jesus. But do we? For many, our focus is you got to look like this. You got to be like this. 
you got to fit in this box. Now look, I don't mean to be unkind, but I'm an evangelist. I'm in a different church every week. Every church has a different box. That can't be the answer, folks, because, I mean, nobody agrees. I don't even agree with myself 10 years ago. <laughs> and what happens is sometimes we get awakened to the power of the Spirit. That's a great awakening. I remember when it happened to me. But my goal was still, it's got to be like this. Oh, now the power of the Spirit to get in my box. <laughs> and we're outcome focused. You say, well, but it's good stuff in the box. Yeah, usually it is. Occasionally we add a few things that don't need to be there. But, uh, you know, most of the time it's good stuff. The problem is if that's your focus, you'll miss out. You say, why? Because whatever you focus on, you depend on. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, right focus. The author of faith, right dependence. So if you're looking unto something other than Jesus, as good as it may be, it's a wrong focus. And whatever you focus on, you depend on. And the law, your version of law living, your version of how it should all play out, has no power to enable you to do it. And that's why we default back to self-dependence. And that's why Romans 7, uh, uh, verse 7 and following, law, 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 then the last half of the chapter, I, I can't do it. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. Because when you focus on the law, the, though it's holy and just and good, it is not there to empower you to do right. It's there to show you when you do wrong. And if you're focused on the law, you're law dependent, which means it has no power to enable you and you go right back to self-dependence and the good that you would you do not the evil that you do not that you do and you're in the debacle of Romans 7 frustration believe me I got that chapter down <laughs> experientially oh wretched man that I am who get past the watts who shall deliver me I thank God through Jesus now look you focus on holiness and it will evade you. You focus on Jesus and you'll end up with holiness. You focus on patience and it will evade you. You focus on Jesus and you'll have patience. Do you get it? Whatever you focus on, you depend on. You see what happened for me in my journey? I awakened to the power of the Spirit. It was a great awakening. I was 30 years old. I remember it well. But I still, for a number of years, had the wrong goal. And then God showed me Jesus, not just as the source of life, but as the goal. And friends, when he's the goal, when he's our focus, you trust him. And when you trust him, guess what? He lives right through your body. That's how you get there. Wow. And so it says, they which receive. That word is translated take in many passages. You see, you got to take what God's giving. Christ is living in me da, 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 by faith. You see, if you miss out on the faith part, then it, you're not experiencing the benefit. And they which receive, those who keep taking, notice, abundance of grace. Not just grace, abundance of it. Why? We need it. We live in a sinful world. So keep taking the abundance of spirit enablement, Jesus Christ in you. And notice it says, and the gift of righteousness. Any attempt at righteousness that's not a gift is not righteousness. Your righteousness and my righteousness won't do. We can have stuff that looks really good. But friends, if it's self-dependent, it's self-righteousness, it's a filthy rag, it doesn't cut it. Because only God meets the standard of God. And that's why we need imputed righteousness and justification and imparted righteousness and sanctification. It's always a gift if God's going to accept it. 
So those who keep taking this abundance of spirit enablement and the gift of righteousness, here it is, shall reign, rule, have dominion in life right now by one, right focus, Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, the righteous reign. Now, friends, what should a speaker do if before he gets to a congregation, he discovers, wow, now, he doesn't write and ask the pastor, but he discovers some things that are happening in that congregation, finds out that there are some people, members, not non-members, but members, and not just members who never come, but members who come all the time, and they're living in immorality, and everybody knows it. Not only that, at the last Lord's Supper, they used alcohol, and everybody got drunk, and that was a mess. Not only that, at the last business meeting, they had a knockdown drag out, and four groups have polarized, vying for preeminence. The church is Corinth. The preacher is Paul. I added a few details, but by and large, I, that's what it says. <laughs> what did he do? He wrote him a letter. It's called 1 Corinthians. You say, boy, I bet you he just, you know, out of the box was letting them have it. No. You know what he said? You know how he addressed that group of people? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Them who are sanctified, called saints. Now, he got there. He dealt with the sin. But he did it from the vantage point. Look, that's not what you are. And you've got to believe what God says about who you are if you ever want the lifestyle changes to kick in. And so there it is. Get the focus back on Jesus. So now we come to our proposition. You know, when, the, when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit, he said the Holy Spirit will convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, of those three, when we think of Holy Spirit conviction, which two of the three do we predominantly think of? Convicts of sin and judgment. Okay, so here's the proposition. Let the Holy Spirit convict you of righteousness. So a girl comes up to me after the service in Missouri a couple of months ago and says, what do you mean? Let the Holy Spirit convict you of righteousness. The word convict means convince. Let the Holy Spirit convince you of righteousness that when you got saved, you're declared righteous. There's a part of you that's made righteous so that by faith you may live righteous. Let the Holy Spirit change the way you think. Let him convince you of righteousness. And friends, when you're convinced of God's provision, now you're on the turf to experience Jesus who always does right he does the right things, and he shuns the wrong ones. And that's how that freedom and victory takes place. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.